So we are continuing this week in the book of Judges or the book of Shof team. Uh, we are going to finish it out today. I apologize in advance. It's going to be a little wordy because there's a lot of narrative that's going to take place. Uh, but we're going to push through. We're going to get through it, and I got plenty of time. So we're uh, probably going to use the whole time limit here. So don't expect to get out too early. But Baruch Hashem. So the book of Shof team. Uh, last time we were together, we talked about how the last uh, three stories within the book of Shoftim are not necessarily in chronological order, uh, but they do uh, compose and they make up a whole epilogue, uh, basically a summary of the entire book. The theme verse that we saw was that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. These last three stories are going to sum that all up and bring it to a conclusion, and we're going to see. Um, how that does play out, what it looks like as a country and as an individual when we begin to do what's right in our own eyes as opposed to what's right in the eyes of our Creator. As we go forward, we must always remember, especially as we close out this book, that God has a plan and a purpose for Israel, and God has a plan and a purpose for all of us, and that God will always meet us as we take steps towards Him. This week will be another dark week in the chapter of Israel, but we will see a light at the end of the tunnel. So last time we were together, we talked about the third story of this epilogue. We learned about a Levite, an unnamed Levite, who had a concubine who was unfaithful to him and left. She unfortunately was raped to death by some Benjamites in the town of Gibeah. In his zeal for righteousness, this unnamed Levite who was her husband, committed an atrocious act. We saw that he cut her into 12 pieces and sent her out through the tribes of Israel, proclaiming that something must be done. We see that this one act sparked a flame in all the people of Israel to take account for the sinfulness that they had seen coming about in their lives. Unfortunately, we're going to see as we continue on this, on this week that this whole flame that has been started will actually burst forth into a, a raging fire of civil war amongst the people. And this shouldn't surprise us because we were told by Moshe in the book of Devarim, chapter 8, that things like this would happen, that as Israel chose to go its own ways, that Adonai would allow them to be delivered into depraved mind and debauchery. But that in the day that they turned back to him, he would heal their land. So the promises are awesome, whether they're negative or positive. God will be glorified in the midst of all of them. So jumping right into chapter 20. Then all Ben Israel went out and was assembled as one person, from Dan to Beersheba, along with the land of Gilead, before Adonai at Mizpah. Here the chiefs of the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers armed with swords. So from Dan to Beersheba, so the, the writer, most believe, is Shemuel, is declaring that from the very top of Israel to the very bottom, everyone is coming to meet at Mizpah. They gathered together as one unit to resolve this family issue. Now the children of Benjamin heard that Benai Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. Then Benai Israel asked, tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, answered and said, I came with my concubine to Gibeah of Benjamin to spend the night. That night men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house. They intended to kill me, 
but instead they raped my concubine until she died. So we see that this Levite, as we discussed earlier, sent a piece to each of the twelves. Now it's debated whether each, 12, each tribe got an individual piece of her body, or if he cut up the entire body into twelve pieces and then sent it out as a show of a parade, declaring what had happened to the, na to the nation. One thing we do see here that I find very interesting is everyone shows up except for Benjamin. Benjamin received the invitation to come and to figure things out, yet the entire tribe chose not to come. The entire tribe was not in trouble, just the, the few men in Gibeah who had done this atrocity. Perhaps in doing this, by their not showing up, this conveyed to the other tribes that the Benjamites were unwilling to deal with this problem themselves. You know, you have that old adage, keep it in the family. So if there's a problem within the family, don't go outside the family to solve the problem. Solve it in the family first. Because the minute you go outside of the family, then everybody knows the beef. And it gets spread and rumors start. So as a result, though, it is here at Mitzpah that the rest of the tribes will make an oath to not give their daughters in marriage to any Benjamite in the future. Now, we're not told this yet, but as we get through this chapter, this, this idea is going to come up. So because Benjamin chose not to show up to figure out what to do, they're then being cut out from the rest of Israel forever. It's a little intense. It's a little aggressive. It's a little excessive, I would say. Verse 6, so I took my concubine, the Levite continues on, and I cut her into pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's possession. For they have committed something obscene and degrading in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. So the unnamed Levite saw that in this instance, if left unchecked, it had a potential to lead the entire nation into a very dark place of depravity. It had to be dealt with. It's also at this point that we have to be careful personally, not to be too quick to pass judgment on this situation, because just like the unnamed Levite, we too do not have the privilege of living in a bubble by the world around us because they surround us. We don't get to pretend that the, the issues of life and the news uh, articles that we read and the things that we see on television aren't directly affecting us as believers in Messiah Yeshua. Every step a government takes towards one way or another with laws, it will affect us in the end. We don't have the right as believers to stand back and do nothing. And this is what we're going to see put forth in this week's uh, verses here. So Isaac Abeniel, the Portuguese Jewish statesman and Bible commentator, saw, saw this. And he points out and he says, Do not think that this is an isolated internal matter that concerns only the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, all the tribes are affected. Because if such conduct goes unpunished, it will spread to the other tribes. So what happens in other states, for example, will never spread to Michigan. <laughs> we know that's not true. What happens in other cities or in other people's homes will never affect my home or my city. It's not true. We don't live in a bubble. The things will affect us. They'll affect our children. They'll affect our grandchildren. So in other words, the unnamed Levite saw a need to battle against the evil so that they could see a change in their culture. He wants them to go from doing what's right in their own eyes 
to doing what's right in God's eyes, a flipping of the script. So at this point, we have to say, okay, well, what is culture? Obviously, he wants the culture to change. There's something intrinsically wrong where these, ben these uh, Benjamites in Gibeah think it's okay to do what they do. And so we have to go and we have to define culture. Now, Webster's Dictionary defines culture as this. The customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. So to put this in another way, that's kind of, there's a lot to unpack there. I think it's best said by the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Walter Littman in this matter. Culture is the name for what people are interested in, their thoughts, their models, the books they read, and the speeches they hear. So what defines a culture? The things we watch, the things we listen to, the things we speak about. That's what defines a culture. So the culture of, the per, of, the, so the culture of a people group consists of two primary components. First, what we do as a community. These are the things we do as a community. And secondly, the reason, the why we do what we do as a community. The, these cultural no, norms. We find these cultural norms throughout. What we do in Michigan is a little different than what they do in Indiana and Illinois. It's just a cultural difference. We have different weather climate, therefore we address the seasons a little bit differently. In Florida, in the middle of December, you're wearing shorts. In Michigan, I might wear shorts because I, I get kind of hot, but most of us are, are dressed, dressed completely down. You know, we got the foot fur jacket on, everything, boots, warm boots, everything. So we find that cultural norms are throughout our society, and there's nothing wrong with cultural norms. It's what defines us, it's what knits us together as a, as a people group, as a congregation. We do have some cultural norms at Tree of Life. One of the big ones here is this. We believe that the Torah is the divine, divinely inspired word of God. That means that as such, the culture within Tree of Life is that we believe that the Moedim, the feasts of God, are relevant for us today to follow and to practice. And we also believe that the moral standard put forth by the Bible is what we're supposed to do. These are cultural norms. If we go to people down the road and we talk to them, they might say, you know what, we believe that God is real and that he has commandments, but those feast days, nope, I don't want those. That's part of their culture. Our culture is a little different. That's okay. I've always said it as like, you know, um, you look at the body of Messiah as a whole. Let's clump us all together. We're like an ice cream shop. If you go into an ice cream store, there's not one flavor of ice cream. There's multiple flavors of ice cream. Yet in the end, they're all ice cream, except for frozen yogurt. That is an abomination. <laughs> that should not be in there. In a frozen yogurt shop, that's cool. But in an ice cream shop, man, I want full fat, I want it sweet, and preferably, I like moose tracks. Personal opinion there. So we believe that the Torah is divinely inspired. Another cultural issue we see within Tree of Life is our worship service. In our worship service, specifically, we give honor to the Torah of God. We don't idolize it and make it an idol to worship, but we give acknowledgement that the Torah is representative of our Messiah, who is the word of life, who was there in the beginning. 
We also have a liturgical service. Even within Messianic Judaism, you have different cultures in different Messianic synagogues because some have a, lot of, have a lot of liturgy, some have a little bit of liturgy, some have no liturgy. It's a cultural difference. Does it make it wrong? Not necessarily. It's just a cultural difference. We also have traditions. We see beauty in the Jewish traditions that draw us closer to our, to our creator. Some of these include mezuzahs and talits. These are beautiful traditions, beautiful traditions. As long as we know why we're doing them, that's the big deal. The biblical command to put tzitzit on the four corners of our garments, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And how do we do it? Within our culture of Messiah Judaism, we have it on our prayer shawls. We have it on our prayer shawls. At Tree of Life, part of our culture is we, we, we agree with the idea that men and women can wear a talit. However, it has to be done in a proper manner. That means when we don our talit, we also have our proper headgear. And when it comes to women versus men donning a talit, a male talit versus a female talit. Because we want to honor and respect the Bible where it says men are not to dress in men's clothing and women are not to dress in women's clothing. So a lady having a pink, beautiful talit, hey, look Hashem, part of our culture, that's acceptable here. Not at every synagogue, but here it is, and we're okay with that. The culture of any individual group must be protected if that group is to remain intact. You know, we've had our shares of divisions within our community. And the reason was is because at some point, the cultural ideals of what that community stood for got lost. And that's why you'll hear us repeat our cultural ideals over and over and over again until you're sick of hearing them because it's who we are. That means that somebody doesn't get to come through the front door and declare, this is what I do, God has told me this. Well, Baruch Hashem, I'm glad you're speaking on a one-on-one -on -one level like Moshe with the Creator. That's awesome. But this is what we're doing here at Tree of Life. Now, you can hang out with us and be part of us. That's awesome. But you need to know what our culture is. And our culture isn't going to just change on the idea of an individual coming in. So verse 8. And the culture is important, because this is a whole culture issue that we're seeing here in Shoftim, in Judges. Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, taking ten men out of every hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand, to supply provisions for the troops, so that when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, they may do to them according to all the disgrace that they have committed in Israel. The big thing we're going to notice here, not once have we heard them say, you know, maybe we should ask God how we should address this situation. They've decided we're going to war against Gibeah, and when we get there, we're going to do some spiritual things. That's how this is going. But they've already decided in their own mind what's right to do. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the town, knit together as one man. Okay, so we have unity. That's a good thing. Unity is a good thing. And the tribes of Israel sent men through the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows that are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge this evil from Israel. So I see a couple good things going on here. Um, obviously, they haven't gone to Adonai first and asked him what they should do, but they've gone to Benjamin, and they're like, okay, we don't want to go to war with all of you. Just send out those no-good guys. We'll take care of the situation, and then we'll all move on. However, Benjamin doubles down, and 
they're going to say, no, we're not going to send them out to you. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their kinsmen. So the children of Benjamin were gathered from their towns to Gibeah to go out to battle against Benai Israel. On that day, the children of Benjamin mustered 26,000 swordmen from the towns besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who numbered 700 chosen men. Out of these troops, there were 700 chosen men that were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That's impressive. Meanwhile, the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, numbered 400,000 swordsmen, all men of war. In case you're paying attention to the numbers, they are outnumbered 15 to 1. Now, in God's dichotomy, or God's economy, numbers don't matter. We've seen this. We saw that with Gideon. 300 men delivered the entire children of Israel. So the numbers really don't matter, but the Torah is quick to point out that Israel's doing what's right in their own eyes. They haven't asked God what to do yet, and so they've mustered this massive army. The odds are grossly not in the favor of Benjamin if we look at it from a secular point of view, from a worldly point of view. But then Benai Israel arose, went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They asked, who is to go up first to battle for us against the children of Benjamin? That whole sentence there should have been a bitter taste in their mouth. They didn't say, hey God, should we be doing this? And then secondly, they said, who should go up and battle against our own kinsmen? This is a little messed up. This is a continuation of the darkness that we saw from the previous week's story. The depravity isn't just with these people from Gibeah. The entire nation has lost track of who they are and the merciful God in which they serve. So Benai Israel rose. Oh, I'm sorry. And Adonai replied, Judah is to go first. So Benai Israel rose up in the morning and camped against Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin and arrayed in battle against Gibeah. But the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and struck down 22,000 men of Israel on the field that day. They lost a tenth of their army in one day, one battle. They should have won according to the numbers, but they didn't. But the people of the men of Israel rallied their strength and arrayed for battle again in the same place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. Yet Benai Israel went up and wept before Adonai until evening. They inquired of Adonai, saying, Shall I draw near to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother? Okay, now we're getting somewhere. So they've had a horrible defeat, and they go before God, and they say, Okay, God, obviously something's off. Should I go? Okay, we're getting someplace. Now they're saying, should I go? But there's a, whole, there's a big thing that they're forgetting to do first. Should I go and battle against my brother? And Adonai said, go up against them. So Benai Israel advanced the t- uh, against the children of Benjamin on the second day. Benjamin came out against them from Gibeah again the second day and struck down 18,000 of Benai Israel on the field, all who drew the sword. Then all Benai Israel went up, and all the people came to Bethel and wept and sat there before Adonai. Okay, now we're really getting somewhere. They fasted. There we go. That's what we wanted. They fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before Adonai. Then Benai Israel inquired of Adonai, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinchas son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, 
had ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother, or should I cease? Sometimes when we think we're in the will of God, we may not be fully in the will of God. They had to deal with the issues. Did justice need to be served? Yes, absolutely, with what happened in Gibeah. Did they need to expel the evil from their land? Yes, absolutely. The problem is is that they decided what needed to be done without first asking God how it should be done. They were more worried about who should go first in battle than if they should even go at all. I love this. This is the part they missed. They fasted. Now in Judaism, fasting is not, I repeat, not, a way of getting God to do what you want, but, by, but a means by which to bring about personal repentance in our own lives. That's why we fast leading up to Yom Kippur and on the day of Yom Kippur. It's not to get God to be, do something about me. It's for me to bring myself to a point where I am so humbled that God then is able to speak into my life and say, hey, Chris, this is what you need to change. Okay, I gotcha. And this is what they do, finally. It took over 30,000 lives for them to come to this point, which is unfortunate. But now they're here. So they fasted, they've humbled themselves, and they're ready to hear from God. So the Reuben edition expounds upon this idea and says, at this point, we see a change of attitude on the part of Israel. Rather than casting the blame on the Urum and the Thurum, or on the Kohen Gadol for having misled them. Remember, they had inquired of God first to go. They recognized that the fault must be theirs, because obviously God is infallible. So the fault must lie with them. And they repented. In addition to their repentance, they asked the proper question, should they fight or not? And God responded with an assurance of victory. So in response to their repentance, They offered burnt offerings to atone for their wrong intentions. And they offered peace or fellowship offerings to express their gratitude to Adonai for those who had actually survived the battle. It could have been way worse. They gathered with bad intentions, under the wrong circumstances. It could have been way worse. Verse 28, continuing on, So Adonai replied, Go up, for tomorrow I will give him into your hand. So Israel sent men in ambush against Gibeah on all sides. Then Benai Israel advanced against the children of Benjamin on the third day in a raid against Gibeah as at other times. The children of Benjamin came out against the people, but they were drawn away from the town, and they began to strike and kill some of the people, about 30 men of Israel. As at other times, on the highways of which one goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. So the children of Benjamin said, They are defeated before us as before. But Benai Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the town to the highways. Then all the troops of Israel rose up from their place and arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar, and the troops of Israel in ambush burst out of their place west of Geba. Then 10,000 troops chosen from all Israel made a frontal attack on Gibeah, and the battle became fierce. But the Benjamites did not know did not know that the disaster was about to strike them. So we see a big difference in this point too. 
Before, when they were going out and just asking God who should go first, he gave them an answer. And they went without a direction, without a leadership, really. This time, they're going in with a battle plan. They actually have things set in order, and they're only going to lose 30 men, all because they went first to Adonai to ask if this should be done. Then Adonai struck Benjamin before Israel. Benai Israel killed 25,100 of Benjamin that day, all drawing the sword. So the children of Benjamin realized that they were defeated. Now the men of Israel had yielded ground to Benjamin because they rallied on the ambush that they had laid against Gibeah. So the men in ambush rushed suddenly upon Gibeah. Then the men in another ambush advanced and struck the whole town down with the edge of the sword. In case you're not counting, we're we're over 50,000 people have died in this civil war. Now there was a prearranged sign between the men of Israel and the men in ambush. They would make a great beacon of smoke rise up from the town. Then the men of Israel would return to the battle. When Benjamin began to strike, killing about 30 of the men of Israel, they said, surely they're defeated before us as in in the first battle. But when the beacon began to rise from the town in a pillar of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them and behold, the whole town was going up in smoke to the sky. Then the men of Israel turned back and the men of Benjamin were terrified for they realized that disaster had struck them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the way of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. Meanwhile, those who came from the towns massacred them in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily overtook them near Gibeah toward the east. Thus, 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All them were men of valor. Then the rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, But they picked off 5,000 of them on the highways. They pressed hard after them to Gidom and struck down 2,000 more of them. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000. Men who drew the sword, all of them were men of valor. But 600 men turned and escaped into the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and stayed at the rock of Ramon for four months. The men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the entire city, the cattle, and all that they found. They also set on fire all the towns that they found. Okay, so they not only defeated them in battle, they then turned around and razed every single city. They killed every man, woman, and child that was left in those cities. In those days, Israel did what was right in their own eyes. The command was not to go and do that. So for four months, these 600 men are all that are left of the tribe of Benjamin. And as we get into chapter 21, we see, Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mitzpah, saying, None of us will give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, Adonai, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That one tribe should be missing in Israel. Then it was on the next day that the people rose up early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. They're repenting again. They realized they went too far. They killed everyone. And they not only killed everyone, but they had made a commitment, an oath that was unbreakable, that they can't give their wives or their women to them as wives. They've utterly decimated an entire tribe, one generation, and it will be gone. 
to say this is messed up, I think, is not a harsh enough statement. Wars do happen, unfortunately. But the way we conduct ourselves as a people, as a culture in war, speaks volumes about us. The tribes began to have buyer's remorse for what they had done, but it was too late. In our lives, when people wrong us, we need to make sure that we don't go to the nth degree to destroy them because there are points that we can reach in our lives where there is no turning back. Then Benai Israel asked, who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the assembly before Adonai? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who did not come up to Adonai at Mizpah, saying, he will surely be put to death. Now Benai Israel felt sorry for Benjamin, their brother, and said, today one tribe has been cut off from Israel. What should we do about providing wives for those who are left? since we have sworn by Adonai not to give them any of our daughters in marriage. So we see a turning here. They're trying to do what's right now. They're trying to make it right. But remember, in those days, Israel did what was right in their own eyes because they had no king to lead them. So they inquired, which one of the tribes of Israel did not go up to Adonai at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come from the, uh, to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to, to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation set 12,000 valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. So in their idea to fix this issue, they realized there is a, a people who are supposed to come up. Now, when the, the shofars sounded throughout the land, all the people are to assemble. So the people of that city are in violation. They were supposed to go up, and they chose not to go. However, as a result, they did not take part of that oath that everyone else had made of not giving their women as wives. So we see a working behind the scenes that Adonai is going to provide for the mistakes that the children of Israel are going to make. Unfortunately, more mistakes are going to be made. Now, this is the thing that you'll do. You are to utterly destroy every male and every woman who has lain with a man. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known man by laying with him. They brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent and spoke to the children of Benjamin who were in the rock of Ramon and proclaimed shalom to them. Sure, that didn't go over too well. Peace to you. Yeah. Love you guys. So when Benjamin returned at that time, verse 14, they gave them the women whom they had spared from the women spared from the women of Jabesh Gilead. Yet they were not enough for them. So the people were sorry for Benjamin because Adonai had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What should we do about the wives for those who are left? Since the women have been destroyed out of Benjamin. They said the survivors of Benjamin must have heirs so that a tribe would not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them our wives or our daughters. For Badai Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a feast of Adonai from year to year at Shiloh, which is to the north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, to the south of Lab Labona. 
So they commanded the children of Benjamin, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh should come out to join in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and let each of you catch his wife from among the daughters of Shiloh. Then go to the land of Benjamin. It's, it's like, it's painful sometimes. It's like reasoning with a toddler sometimes, it seems. And it's so easy to say that when you read the narrative in this fashion. And yet to turn around and to look back and say, yeah, I do the same things. I'm a knucklehead too. You know, so it's easy to cast the first stone until you stop and you fast and you like, you know what? I do some of the same goofball things. I'm no better. I'm in the same boat of them. And that's the beauty of the Bible is that we have all these stories of people who messed up and fell short. I mean, the book of Judges is full of them. And yet Adonai still used them in the end for his glory after they repented. Add that little caveat in there. Verse 22, so it will be if their fathers or brothers come to complain to us that we will say to them, grant them graciously for us because we did not provide each one of them his wife in battle, nor did you give the girls to them, else you would now be guilty of violating. Remember, they had made the oath as well to not give their daughters. So the rest of them go behind their backs and say, okay, let's just have them steal their daughters. I don't know about you. As a father of two daughters, man, I would be livid. There would be no one who could stop my wrath in that moment. So the children of Benjamin did so and took the number of wives from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. So Benai Israel departed from there at that time, each man to his tribe and family. Everyone went out from there to his own inheritance. The civil war's over. The chapter ends like this, and the book of Judges ends like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They all fell into that sin cycle. They started with peace. They got apathetic. They sinned, which led to their oppression. They were judged, and then they were delivered. This, place, this book ends in a dark place once again. Maybe not as dark as a woman getting chopped up, but it is dark. It's a civil war. It's not fun. But as with all dark places, it takes only one tiny light to penetrate through the darkness. Next week, we will begin to see that light as we continue in the book of Ruth. Because it is the book of Ruth that happens during the time of Judges. We will see that light start to shine in Ruth that even though they chose to do what was right in their own eyes, Adonai is working miracles, even though we don't see them. Shabbat Shalom.